Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we do so from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today's guest will again be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be PhD Dr. John Cook, the author of Crucifixion in the Medical Mediterranean World. During the season of Lent, we want to air this show on the sufferings of Christ, and there's no greater expert in the world on the history of crucifixion than Dr. Cook. And I ran across him because my friend, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, asked me to write a course for Catholic Distance University in 2014, and I wanted to do something no medical author had done. And this course would be on uh, the, the medical aspects, the history of crucifixion. And no physician had ever before gone back and looked at the ancient evidence to support conclusions about what Jesus endured. So I was searching geeky Greek and Latin literature websites, yes, there are such things, for any mention of crucifixion in antiquity. And about three months into the project, I discovered this book called Crucifixion in the Mediterranean World, now in its second edition. It's an over 500-page book, and being the nerd that I can be, I devoured it and loved it. Such tremendous self uh, insight there. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, you're you're being modest, uh, and you were talking a lot about Dr. Cook's uh, excellent work, and we'll talk a lot more with Dr. Yes. Cook about Dr. Cook. But you've done something that most of us only dream of, and that is you've published a book, and that book yes. is entitled "What Christ Suffered: A Physician's Journey Through the Passion." So, the first thing I have to ask you about that is. What was the difference between you and the rest of us who all think we we all think that we have great books in our heads, but you actually sat down and wrote it? What drove you to do that? It wasn't my idea. In other words, giving talks through the years, people had said at various points I should write a book. And I told the Lord, okay, if a book company asks me to write the book, I'll write it. But until then, I'm not gonna, gonna initiate it. So Chris and I actually belong to a group of men in uh Legatus, which is uh, ambassadors to the marketplace for, for Catholic company owners, CEOs, etc. And one day, a couple years ago, after finishing our little men's forum group that meets together and discuss, you know, super secret things after doing the correct handshake, uh, <laughs> one of our friends who happens to work for our Sunday visitor learned about my interest in this particular area and said, Tom, you should write a book. And so they asked me to submit a, a first chapter. So I just went home and in about 90 minutes whipped up a chapter. I said, ah, we'll see what they say. Well, they wanted me to write it. It's become a book, uh, but it actually grew out of a course that I initially wrote for Catholic Distance University. So there's like 700 hours of work in this book. And it's unique because it combines two different strands. One, understanding better how Christ suffered based on an incredible amount of information I didn't know was available. And then number two combines how we can suffer better. And so if we know Christ better, I think we can suffer better uh, with him. So on Christmas Eve day, I received a box on our porch. And in the box, unbeknownst to me till I opened it, was 20 copies of this book. And it was amazing to see. And any money that I get in royalties, I'm donating to the Catholic Medical Association for the formation of Catholic medical students and pre-medical students. Wow, Tom, that's so impressive. I mean, I love the topic, and I've heard you give some tremendous talks on the crucifixion, because it, it does offer 
such an interesting intersection between medicine and the way we tend to think as physicians about disease and injury uh, and the things associated with this horrible form of torture. But it's impossible to think about all those things and not be reminded that they happen to our Lord and Savior. So it's this bizarre connection between the theology and the, the physiology and the biology, you might say. Theology and physiology. Yeah, you, you don't find those things together very much, and especially something that just doesn't, uh, oh, what's the word, massage the intellect of people, but actually touches them where, where we live. A friend of ours actually was uh, Dr. Eustace Fernandez, who's been on the show with us. He challenged me like six, seven, eight years ago. I forget how long it was to write a course on human suffering for us medical professionals to learn better about it. And so I used Salvafici Dolores, which is John Paul II's great work on the Christian meaning of human suffering. And that um, has actually now been combined in this book to try to bring home some of these really practical points of our saintly Pope. Well, so listeners, you have to pick up this book. Uh, the proceeds go to a great cause, and the content is potentially life-changing. But along those lines, Tom, uh, after, at the end of this journey that resulted in that box being delivered, what's, what do you think affected you the most in your work on the book? That is a great question. Uh, probably uh, a couple things come to mind. Many things come to mind. One is that the price of love is suffering. The greatest love of all time, you know, God making us and then saving us required the great, greatest suffering, the death of God. Um, also, uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, you know, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. In other words, that uh, joy comes through suffering and kind of explains in some way that mysterious verse of St. Paul in Colossians 1, 24, that he says he makes up what is lacking in mm -hmm. the suffering. Christ uh, for the sake of his body, that is the church. And what, what is lacking and what I've learned from reading the popes is the fact that Jesus Christ on the cross only suffered in the body that was born through the Virgin Mary, the person born through the Virgin Mary. But he wants to suffer in each one of us till the end of time to complete his suffering, which, which then answers that question, you know, where was God on 9-11? <laughs> or, or where was God in the Nazi concentration camps? And the good answer I've learned is God was in each of those people suffering with them on 9-11. He was in the crematoriums suffering and dying with each of those people. And something I read this year, the best thing I read all in 2020 regarding suffering is this, that Christ did not come into the world to remove suffering. Second, he did not even come into the world to explain suffering, but he did come into the world to suffer with us. So those are some of the key things that I've learned. Amen. You know, when I've heard you uh, talk on this topic uh, and in reading your book, the thing that, that strikes me is I'm, reminding, I'm reminded of the fact that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, which would mean he had the, it seems to me, the capacity to suffer more than someone who was merely human. So his suffering is even greater than the atrocities, uh, the physiology of which you describe so brilliantly in the book, that he, he actually hurt more than any one of us because he was hurting for all of creation and all of mankind in one moment. Yes. yes. Well, before we can get to our special guest, John Cook, we have our patented medical trivia question of the day. The category is shock, which is thought to be the main cause of death by crucifixion. And shock is a medical emergency caused by the organs not getting enough blood and therefore oxygen. 
It doesn't have anything to do with the shock we feel when something scares or upsets us. So when our body can't get enough blood to our organs, they start shutting down. Now there are three different parts of the body that cause shock and the question is going to be what's the third part of the body that can possibly lead to shock? The first is the heart. It's just not pumping enough out, either fast enough or enough with each beat. The second, there might not be enough volume of blood and other fluids um, to go around. So you've got the heart, you've got blood. What is the third potential source, the third thing that can go wrong even if the heart is pumping right and there's enough fluids. What is the third thing that can go wrong so that your organs don't get enough blood and oxygen? We'll be back with the answer near the end of the show, but we'll be back with more on Dr. Doctor here after our break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Uh, and our topic in this episode is the history of crucifixion. And we have with us tonight an expert on the same topic, Dr. John Cook, PhD, uh, currently, he's the professor of religion at LaGrange College. He has a PhD from Emory University in early Christianity and New Testament. He has a master's in uh, divinity and biblical studies and theology from Union Theological Seminary uh, and a BA in philosophy from Davidson College. We're so very fortunate to have you with us tonight. Dr. Cook, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure to have you with us on such an interesting uh, topic. Uh, Tom and I had the pleasure at the beginning of uh, the episode to talk about uh, his recent book. And so we really, I think, would yeah. like to begin with kind of the same question uh, that I asked Tom, and that is, how did you become so interested in the topic of crucifixion? Well, I, I did a book called The Roman Attitudes Towards the Christians from Claudius to Hadrian. And in that book, I began to look at some of the fiercest crucifixions, I mean, some of the fiercest persecutions. And the one that I, I got most interested in was by Nero. And according to Tacitus, a Roman historian, Nero crucified some of the Christian martyrs in Rome, accusing them of arson, of, of setting the great fire in 64. Right. And so in that book, I began to get interested in the penalty itself. And I had a, a mentor in Germany, a very famous New Testament professor, who wanted me to expand his book on crucifixion. And his name was Martin Hingle. Yes. And the more I looked into Hingle's book, the more I decided that I, I would rather write my own. <laughs> and because his is, his is very short and it's very useful. And to have turned it into a 500-page <laughs> monograph would have been a, a, a terrible thing to do. And so i that's why I decided to write the book. And then, John, you are a Catholic, but you weren't always a Catholic. So at, at what point did you decide to become a Catholic? And then, you know, how did that influence how you looked at the crucifixion in your non-Catholic time and your Catholic time? Well, um, I was married. I, I grew up Presbyterian, and I was ordained as a Presbyterian pastor. Wow. Um, my wife, however, is Episcopalian, a cradle Episcopalian. And so we were married in her church, and I got used to kneeling and I would go <laughs> in her, to her church. <laughs> and after my pastorate, um, we began exploring churches in Atlanta. I came back to do a postdoctoral project at Emory. and. I, I became I came very interested in the Eucharistic liturgy of the Episcopal Church, 
Ah. But the after I moved to Lagrange, I realized that the Catholic Church had an even deeper liturgy, and I was getting more and more interested in the Church Fathers, and yes. I was also impressed by the saints and mm. all the wealth of the saints for the last two thousand years. I just found captivating, and I began attending uh, mass. Uh, it took me actually, the priest gave me a copy of the catechism and he took me through the RCIA program <laughs> person to person. Wow. <laughs> put me in the Big class, gift. but it took me two years. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I just fell in love with the, with the church and it was a long process and it was a very spiritually difficult process for me, but um, I haven't regretted it. Well, thanks be to God. What year did you come in the church, John? 2003 at the vigil service for the Easter that year. Well, John, you and I share that history. Um, I came in in 2007 after spending a decade in the Episcopal Church. Uh, and I, I often think of it as, you know, my pre-Catholic boot camp. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad the Holy Catholic Church made room for both of us. Absolutely. Thanks be to God. Now, John, this, this is a medical show, and our listeners are just, uh, they have an unquenchable thirst for medical information. We know this. Um, so a medical question seems to be in order. How did the medical understanding of our bodies and physiology in the time of Christ, um, how did that influence this barbaric sort of torture and, and punishment? Well, at I can't really speak to the medical understanding of the first century, um, but I do know that the Romans were able to make this punishment last for days if mm. they wanted to. Um, and there are there are texts where people actually um, did did survive for several days on a cross, and I I think the Romans were well aware. Um, that torture could kill, but they also knew how to make it last. Hmm. And so I think, you know, to approach your question from that angle, they did have a certain medical understanding of the human body as, as far as how much can a person take. And I think that is one of the, um, shall we say, as part of the evil genius of a torturer that they, that they can they can make the the pain um, last almost, I suppose, as long as they want. I don't know much more about torture than that. So, John, I, I think it, it's in your book, uh, Eusebius, the, uh, the historian, you know, of, uh, fourth century. Was he the one who thought that the cause of death was really starvation? Um, that I don't remember specifically, but the... You know, that is an interesting question in itself because they don't really talk about the cause of death too much. Right. For instance, and, and Seneca talks about your blood just dripping down and as if it's an, a sort of a, a long process of pain. And, and he doesn't, he doesn't, um, he doesn't know what causes the, the death. And, and I'm not so sure the Romans did. So, so, but John, why do you think this topic is important for our listeners? Okay, you asked me before how did the the 
my, my entry into the church yes. influence my work on crucifixion. I think one of the great differences between the Protestant and Catholic forms that, uh, is that in the Protestant churches, the cross is empty. And yes. in the Catholic church, that the very center of the, of the sanctuary is a crucifix. And I, and I think the saints, at least many of the saints, have concentrated on standing at the foot of Christ's cross and the experience of, 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 of that and how it, that symbolism can mold a person's spirituality and life. And so when I was writing the book, this was sort of in the back of my mind that uh -huh. we use it. You mentioned about suffering before, about Christ's suffering and how people have experienced great pain, but nothing's like that pain. I think that people who are, in the Catholic Church at least, people who are undergoing great periods of trial in their life have this treasury of the saints where they can look back and see how individuals in the church use the imagery of Christ's cross, Christ on the cross, to endure and triumph. And not just endure, but to actually um, be victorious on the other side. You know, John, it's interesting, again, as a previous uh, Protestant, I don't think in my Protestant years, I found myself focusing much on the crucifixion, probably for the reason that you point out. Uh, the imagery just is missing um, in, in the Protestant traditions. And it really wasn't until one Easter that I watched the Mel Gibson film, uh, The Passion, where oh, yes. it just became so palpable, palpably understandable that that how human he was and therefore how how horrible the torture was. Um, that made it sort of brought everything together, uh, but the empty cross doesn't delay, doesn't relay that same message, does it? No, no. And and um, my father is a Presbyterian pastor too, and he 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 told me that the reason the uh, Protestant churches have the cross that's empty is to emphasize the resurrection. Mm. Now, of course, people like Martin Luther um, were interested in the theology of the cross, but but the symbolism changed. As you took the crucifix out of the church, uh, that symbolism, I think, affected the, the Protestant liturgy an awful lot. Interesting. Well, John, we talk about more to the Passion of Christ than the crucifixion. We know he was scourged. You know, going back to, you know, the 5th century BC, what were typical tortures that preceded crucifixion? The, uh, the first historical uh, the first historical records of crucifixion began to emerge in the Second Punic War between Rome and Carthage. And in some of those accounts, they talk about, well, you mentioned flagellation. And anybody who watches Mel Gibson's movie, The, the Passion of the Christ, can get a, a vivid image of what being, uh, being whipped looks like. Um, and that is an absolutely brutal uh, brutal penalty. And I, I found that to be mentioned many, many times in the mm -hmm. Roman accounts. Now, one of the things about Roman accounts of crucifixion is they don't tell you a whole lot. It's actually the New Testament where you find most of the 
description of the longest description of a crucifixion. But there are other tortures that are mentioned in people like the Roman um, comic playwright Plautus and um, in a law that appeared in a town called Puteoli, a law that, that had to do with uh, franchising the right to bury people and the right to crucify people. And in that law and in Plautus, they mentioned things like um, putting wax on people's body, pitch and wax, and setting them a setting them a fire and uh, and whipping and making them carry the cross piece uh, to the actual crucifixion post. So it's a uh, it, it it I think they varied the tortures. And isn't there some evidence? that many of the victims while carrying the crossbar were being whipped at the same time? That's right. And I think that that law from Puteoli does mention that. And yeah. when we say this law, this was actually in, inscribed in stone, wasn't it? Exactly. It was inscribed in stone and it was um, placed probably in public areas so that, and, and maybe several copies so that people could read it. And and when was that when wasn't it sometime around you know the early years of Christ's life sometime around the turn of the millennium when exactly. that was okay it's 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 often dated to the reign of Caesar Augustus who died in in 14 AD I mean so we have to assume thinking more about Christ's suffering he quite literally grew up within the shadow of regular crucifixions and at the same time on his divine side he knew that was his fate um, that had that had to be a terrible way uh, to go through time, uh, at least on the human side of Christ. It had to be just part of the torture. One of the authors that mentions uh, the most crucifixions is a Jewish writer named Josephus from the first century. And he speaks of many bandits who were crucified by various governors, um, Roman prefects and governors during that period. And and for instance, uh, Titus, when he was besieging Jerusalem, was crucifying hundreds of hundreds of people a day in front of the walls of the city. Wow. So the difference, obviously, you know, if if Christ were not the Son of God, um, his death would have been considered that just of another bandit or you know a, a, another criminal. And so there's, you know, the, the Christian faith really transforms this 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 event and of course it's the resurrection too that that transforms it <laughs> yes who started the ball rolling what's the the first um crucifixion known in literary history well i think the first historical historically reliable crucifixions take place during the second punic war and that's at the very end of the third century bc if I so, remember correctly. So when Herodotus talks about the Persian wars with Greece, you think those may not be? Um, you know, the, the interesting thing there is there's the, the Persians probably did things like uh, impalements. Mm -hmm. And the in the Middle East, there's, there's an ancient tradition of impalements. I mean, even Babylon and Assyria, there's, there's images... There, there's there are some bronze gates in the British Museum where where she's the uh, I forget if it's Assyria or Babylon, but they have besieged the city and and they have uh, actually you see the stakes where individuals warriors have been impaled on the stakes. 
And I think that is probably the kind of thing that you find. But you also find um, in Herodotus some accounts where people are, are nailed up against boards. And so that is very close to crucifixion. And I think it probably was an ancestor of it. Um, and the Greeks, I, I'm, I'm almost certain the Greeks did practice a form of crucifixion. Uh, they, they, but, but the Romans really are the ones that developed it. They perfected it. They perfected it. So at the time of Christ, is there such a thing as a typical crucifixion? Or maybe that's the wrong question, that there's no such thing as typical. But to your the ability to know, what would have been a typical style crucifixion? Well, I think you can, you can assume that they were whipped beforehand in general mm-hmm. and tortured in other ways, too, probably. But and I and I have a feeling uh, that that probably some of them or many it's hard to say about how many would would have had to be forced to carry the horizontal piece, what the Roman authors call the patibulum, um, through the streets, and that and that occasionally they would have been beaten or maybe all the all the time maybe always they were beaten. But it's really difficult to say what always happened because uh, you know the thing about. The crucifixion is the Roman authors really didn't want to say much about it. Hmm. It's sort of like, I, I guess, you know, if, if you have the flu, you tell a person, a friend, well, I've got the flu and they know exactly <laughs> what you mean. <laughs> you don't have to explain uh, all the details. And, and I think, and that's, that's not a, a good analogy really, but it, cause it's kind of a um, lighthearted one. But when, when an author said, okay, this person was crucified, I think the Romans and the Greeks of that time, they knew what you meant. And the Jews knew what you meant. Mm. Um, but when you course, mentioned the uh, siege of Jerusalem and those hundreds of crucifixions a day, one of the lines that Josephus uses is, they were crucified one after one way and one after another. In other words, the torturers could be creative in the way they were crucified. Isn't that right? That's right. And they, they, in other words, some were, I think, upside down yes. to Josephus. And they, they probably, you know, they, the, I mean, the sky's the limit. They, they probably had, as I said, they were creative. And uh, it's, a, it's a measure of the horrors, the, hor- the horrific side of the empire that they came up with this kind of creativity. Something I learned from you. Uh, was that there are actual graffiti images of crucifixion made during the first couple centuries after Christ. And what do they reveal, John? Those, it's interesting that those, there, there are two, two graffiti, one that's in um, Puteoli, interestingly enough, where they have the law of crucifixion. And it apparently shows, and it, it ha- there's a woman's name above the crucified individual, Alcamilla. Right. And that it appear, it seems to have been done around the time of Trajan, which is at the beginning of the of second century BC, and and it shows a T-shaped cross. Now the other graffito is from probably the second century AD, and it is a, it is an image of a man on a cross with a donkey head. And right. And and underneath to the side of the image it says Alexamenos worships God, 
And so what that is, it's, it's and, and the Italians call it the blasphemous crucifixion. And, and it's in the museum on the Palatine Hill in the Roman Forum. Um, and you go in that museum and you can, if it's not lent out, you can see it. And it's actually very, very small. And it is a, a, a blasphemy of Christ. Hmm. And it was found in um, what maybe have been a school for slaves, uh, an emperor's emperor's slaves. And the next earliest image is from maybe the third century, and it's on a gem that's in the British Museum called the Pereira gem. Yes. And in that image, Christ is, is Jesus is, is on a, another T-shaped cross, and it looks like there are fetters around his wrists attaching him to the horizontal piece. Mm. And it is, some people call it a magic gem. Um, but in any case, it's it's the it's it's that's the most ancient sort of Christian and, art. And the key thing on these is is they were made while crucifixion was still going on before Constantine abolished it. We're going to take a break now and come back with more. And I want to walk through step by step what we think we know about Jesus' crucifixion with Dr. John Cook here on Doctor Doctor. And welcome back to Dr. Doctor, again from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. John, for our listeners, let's do a little, um, a little intellectual exercise. And based on your research uh, and accepting that we can't know perfectly how Jesus suffered exactly, um, but what, what of, uh, of the list of things that we'll go through here are likely to have happened or maybe not so likely uh, to have happened? And one we've already talked about, but some pre-crucifixion torture. Well, I, well, we've we've talked about the whipping, right? And, and then carrying the cross. How far would they carry it? How big would it be? And did is there any evidence that somebody ever carried a two-part T-shaped cross? The only the only evidence that I have found is where in Roman authors, and there's not a lot of it to be honest, is that people carried the cross piece, the horizontal bar called the patibulum, P-A-T-I-B-U-L-U-M. And in the, in the authors that do talk about it, they carry the crossbar to an object that the Latin authors call the crux, C-R-U-X. And that would have been already standing. Now, in the Mel Gibson film, and in ancient, you know, in a lot of the Christian art, Jesus carries a T-shaped cross, hmm as in a small T. Right. And I have not found, and I think that, that in the, in the Roman practice, people did not carry the cross. I think it would have been too heavy in any case. Right. Um, but very good. So when Jesus reaches Calvary, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. Any evidence that was done at other times? We know it was for Jesus, but is it mentioned anywhere else that you've come across? I have not found any other accounts that mention that. Uh, but of course, that doesn't mean that it, it it didn't happen in the Gospels. It just means that we don't have that that kind of a detail sure. in other accounts. Do we have evidence of different ways, possibly affixing hands and feet to the cross? Uh, earlier, we talked about the different positions that people could have been put in, and on these in these graffiti that that we talked about before. Um, the one with Alcamilla, she's attached, her wrists seem to be attached uh, to the horizontal. 
And with the uh, Palatine Graffito, it's very difficult to tell. But one thing I haven't found in, in any of the three ancient pieces that I des- that I described is is nails going through palms. Mm-hmm. But again, that doesn't mean that they couldn't have attached the wrists um, to the crossbar and then nailed through the palms also. Now, it, as far as uh, and and there's an interesting piece of evidence too that that some of your listeners will have heard. Of where a, a calcanium bone, the heel bone, a heel bone has been pierced by a nail, a crucifixion nail. And in that case, it looks like, and this is the same as in the Alcamilla Graffito, that the, each, each of the person's heels was attached on the different, on the opposite side of the vertical piece. And so, and that is almost exactly what the Alcamilla Graffito uh, appears to show. Exactly. There's no crucifix in church art until around a thousand years after Christ that shows feet on the front of a crucifix, surprisingly. John, what about the, the spear being thrust in Christ's side? How likely is that or how common a practice was that? I did find, I did find one text uh, that mentions piercing but it's that's it's rare again it's rare these kinds of details are few and far between um i have no reason personally to doubt the truth of the story though right and how about the uh, breaking of the legs of the two thieves crucified next to christ was that ever a punishment on its own or with crucifixion besides what we learned from the gospel of john the Latin authors call that crurifragium, uh, C-R-U-R-I-F-R-A-G-I-U-M. And that was a, a penalty that was practiced on people. What we don't have is accounts where it's put together by the Roman authors. However, uh, Constantine also stopped that practice. Yes. Now, was crurifragium sometimes done as a standalone punishment? I think so. I think it was. I think it was used as a standalone punishment. It's mentioned as a standalone punishment from time to time. And Tom, in some of your work, you've offered that uh, that could lead to bleeding to death. The breaking of the large bones like that could lead to large blood volume loss. Correct? Yeah. There's a, a good article in an emergency medicine journal from about oh, 12 years ago that shows how much blood can be lost from an open or closed fracture of the tibia. The leg bone, of course, an open fracture, the bone sticking out through the skin, um, a closed fracture, uh, it's underneath the skin. And and essentially, if you get the bone sticking out of the skin, you're going to lose probably uh, a pint of blood to two pints from each uh, tibia. And all that somebody the size of Jesus would have to lose is probably uh, four to six, five or six pints. And they're dead regardless of how much other blood they've lost. And we would have so, known he would have likely lost a lot of blood through the scourging uh, and the breaking of the skin um, in the day yeah. before the crucifixion. Yeah. Plus, just from sweating, a lot of fluid is lost. And then yeah. from the trauma of the scourging, you have some fluid and some blood that can get outside the lungs, still in the chest, but it's not doing your circulation any good. Hmm. So, John, what happened typically to bodies of crucified victims? Well, that is a... That is an interesting question because the Romans occasionally liked to leave the bodies up for a while so that animals would consume parts of the corpse. 
but eventually I, I think they would have buried them. Um, the, I think just like us, the Romans wouldn't have want these bodies around forever. But they all, there is also evidence of people, of crucified victims being buried. And this, this uh, heel bone that, that I just mentioned is a perfect example of that because yes. that was found in a, in a bone box in Jerusalem in a, a tomb that was uncovered. And so it, it's, we know that people were buried. And the, the, the law of the Pudioli talks about burial. So it is sort of a misconception to say that crucified bodies were just kind of thrown on the ground and left there. I mean, the Romans knew better than just leaving dead bodies around. And, and it is a, but, but there are horrific images of, of ravens and other uh, animals, dogs, eating the bodies of crucified victims uh, while they were still on the cross or eating parts of the bodies. So that would, would, would at least tell you in part that they weren't up very high. Hmm. Um, well, that's a good point. Cause we always picture it was Jesus. He was God. He must've been up high. Yeah. It's hard to picture. But you mentioned misconceptions, John, I mean, in your work and you're speaking on this topic, what do you find that um, are the greatest misconceptions really among lay people, clergy and religious about this gruesome topic? I don't think there's any real major misconceptions. I mean, the the idea, I suppose the idea that Jesus carried a T-shaped cross Mm. through the streets of Jerusalem um, can be considered to be a misconception because we just don't have any evidence that people ever carried an entire cross. Uh, But that really is due more to Christian artists than anything else. It's not really due to interpretation of the Gospels, I think. And when you talk about Christian artists, when when do we see the first image of Jesus on a cross in Christian art? Well, I think these gems that I mentioned before. Um, and that is uh, work that Felicity Harley has done. And, and the, the reason I'm mentioning her is she has a, she has a website on academia. And, and people can, can look at her articles for free. It's open source. And she has many beautiful images uh, and photographs of these, of these uh, things, these gems. And also of the doors, the wooden doors of Santa Sabina and the Maskell Ivories. That, and it, it, it's just a wealth of ancient Christian art. And eventually she'll publish her book. So the the first time any church art, so those gems were arguably not used, you know, within a liturgical or church context, but certainly the Maskell Ivories, this little reliquary box, and then the doors of Santa Sabina. And what's interesting is in both of these, Christ is pictured alive on the cross, not dead on the cross. Mm -hmm. And there are no images of the crucifixion in the catacombs. I found that astounding. Did you, John? You know, it is fascinating. And, and the other, I mean, the other side of that is that the Romans didn't uh, do images of crucifixion much. I mean, this, this, these two graffiti that I mentioned are, are extremely rare. And, you know, and, and I've, I've asked people, I've asked experts in classics and ancient art about this before. And, and, you know, I suppose the answer is they just didn't want to see it. But sure. there are there are images, for instance, on it's called um, 
red slipwear. And these would have been used in, in homes for special dinners and things. And on this red slipwear, there are pictures of people being killed by animals. In other words, executions by animals, uh, by beasts. And that's something that the Romans practiced in the Colosseums. And there are plenty of images in Roman art of gladiators. Hmm. But crucified victims is not something that they were interested in portraying. And so my guess is that that has a lot to do with the earliest Christian art not being um, what we would expect it to be. Do you have a favorite passage in the Gospels uh, or in the New Testament relating to the passion of Jesus? It's Jesus' quotation in the Gospel of Mark and Matthew of of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hmm. I think this really... uh, sums up the suffering that that he endured. And St. Augustine has many pages of commentary on that. And it is and it's brilliant. But the the you know some people occasionally want to try and and read the entire Psalm 22 into that one passage, but he just doesn't quote the entire Psalm 22. He quotes that first. And, you know, that, that, and I think it's, it's not, not an expression that, that of, of, of he's given up faith or anything, but, but it's an expression of the, the deep pain that he had to undergo. Uh, is Jesus and the thief, Thieves next to him, the only people we know of in antiquity who spoke while on a cross? There are, there are a number of references to people speaking. I mean, n- not a lot, but there are some others. And the Romans were crucifying some people in one of their wards in Spain, and the people on the cross were singing songs just to make the Romans mad. Wow. And... and you know, that's the sort of ultimate uh, protest, I, I suppose. But um, and, and there are other some other references to speaking on the cross. And one of the things that shows you is that Jesus was not impaled the way some Christians claim or some scholars. Uh, the Romans did occasionally practice impalement. There's not a lot of evidence for it, specific evidence. But as far as I understand it, when you impale a person directly from their crotch all the way up through their throat, they don't live but a few seconds, if that long. That would be instantaneous, yes. Instantaneous death. And you don't talk um, from a cross. So we know that Jesus was not impaled. And there are some Christian groups that uh, I won't name anyone here, but that, that... that believe he was impaled and, and it's just impossible. Well, just, here, uh, just when we think the imagery couldn't get more gruesome, <laughs> we've, we've moved from scourging and crucifixion to impalement. Um, that, that's a tough, that's a tough image to sort of accept, but um, what do you think uh, deserves more attention by, by our fellow Christians and listeners uh, on the topic uh, of crucifixion, John? I think the it's looking at the difference because 
maybe over 100,000 people were crucified by the Romans. It's, it's difficult to come up with a number, but that's, wow. I think it's in the six figures. And what makes Jesus' crucifixion different from all the others? I think that is what Christians should reflect on. And when you, when you start thinking about that, you realize that, that the death of Christ is at the very center of Christian theology. And his death on the cross is at the very center of Christian theology. Hmm. And of course, the resurrection is too. They really both go together. And, and, and one doesn't sort of exist without the other. I mean, they, and, and I think that's why, that's why I find the Catholic Church so appealing is because we use both these images as central. And, and I think, and the other is that, that the cross is sort of treated as a piece of jewelry um, in our culture. Sure. And, you know, the pop stars, they sing concerts wearing it and, and it's in films and so forth. But I, I think if people knew what crucifixion was really about, we wouldn't treat it with that kind of, of um, easygoing nonchalance. Maybe that's the word, just nonchalance, uh, just another piece of jewelry to wear. It, 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 the cross is, is a horrifying penalty. And, and the, and the early Christians had to be so intimately familiar with crucifixion, just based on the sheer numbers, that when they chose to use uh, the cross as the symbol of this of this new religion, they had to know they may suffer the very same fate, um, which again just speaks to the reverence it deserves and the respect it deserves. It, it is an utterly bizarre symbol to choose, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. For, for for a religion, it, it's just a, the strangest. But yet you can see why, ultimately. Mm. Um, and, and speaking to that, I you know that the, the it is it is curious that we don't have many other records of Christians being crucified, and there were some, of course, and especially in the great persecution of Diocletian, um, they crucified some Christians and Nero, uh, but it's there's only sporadic evidence of it um, after that, so. You know the the it it really was focused on Christ, the ancient Christian historian. So John, in wrapping up in a few seconds, if listeners want to access articles or your book, how can they do that? Well, I have some I have some material on my academia website, John Granger Cook, and there is one article that I did for the uh, a website called Bible Interpretation, in which I put a lot of the images in there. But the, the, the other thing is, I wouldn't, if people want to look at images, I would encourage them to look at Felicity Harley's Academia website. Academia.edu, correct? Academia.edu. Felicity Harley McGowan. John Cook, thank you for being with us at the beginning of Lent 2021. God bless you and all your good work. Thank you. God bless you too. Welcome back, listeners, to Dr. Doctor, and it's time to answer our medical trivia question of the episode. So just to recap, uh, we're talking about shock. There's three parts of the body that can cause shock. The heart, if it just isn't doing its job and pumping blood. Second, the volume of blood and other fluids itself. If there isn't enough, that can lead to shock. But what's the third potential source that can cause shock in our bodies, Tom? 
And that third potential source is besides the heart, what's the blood traveling through? And that's the blood vessels. So a problem with blood vessels that could cause it is that the pipes that carry the blood just get way too big. And therefore, there's not enough blood to fill it. And so a lot of it's stuck in the blood vessels, the big blood vessels, without getting into the little ones in the organs. And what can do that? A bad allergic reaction. You know, we've been hearing about anaphylaxis is something that happens. A severe infection can do that. Certain poisons can. And so can damage to your nervous system. So a third way you can have shock, the blood vessels, the pipes just get too big. And now Chris has three key takeaways from this episode. Well, not on the list of three. I have to start by saying this is a gruesome topic, uh, isn't it? It can be it can be tough to listen to. I'm reminded of the first time I watched Mel Gibson's Passion. Um, it's hard to watch and not want to just turn it off. So I hope, listeners, you're still with us uh, and you didn't tune out. But the first of the three, I would say uh, really this. Christ suffered. I mean, he really suffered. And when we hear in the readings um, and our liturgy about Christ's suffering, we need to be reminded of the gruesome nature of this conversation uh, in this episode. Uh, second, I would say a lot of our images are just historically uh, incorrect when it comes to uh, the passion of, of Christ. Uh, the number one that we think about from listening to John is the idea that Christ would have carried the T cross on his back, uh, much more likely that he carried simply the horizontal piece and not the entire cross. Uh, and then lastly, uh, I think probably perhaps most importantly, and that idea that outside of our faith, our beautiful Catholic faith, suffering, it really has no value. It's empty. It doesn't have the redemptive value. And outside of our faith, we don't have the ability to contextualize uh, suffering. And so that's just another of the, the great gifts to us from our faith and our church. And I agree with those three takeaways. If you want to delve much more deeply into this, I encourage you to uh, purchase the book uh, that was just published. Uh, my name is on it somewhere, What Christ Suffered, A Doctor's Journey Through the Passion. And you'll find out why it doesn't make sense that suffocation contributed to Jesus' death. But we'll talk about what most likely did. And again, based on the best evidence that I've been able to find, I had to change the way I had been teaching on this subject for decades. I was wrong. And so this book is my attempt to put it right. And Tom, the proceeds from that book are going to make the McGovern family very wealthy. Uh, not true. It's oh. going to the Catholic Medical Association for outreach to Catholic pre-medical and medical students. Outstanding. Listeners, buy that book. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association that comes to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And be sure to rate and review our show to help other listeners find us. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR 
to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.